Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm extremely excited today to welcome very special guest, Village CEO, you know, portfolio CEO, Alan Curtis, CEO, founder of Radar Relay. Alan, welcome to the studio. Thanks, Eric. Excited to be here. Awesome. So we have a lot to get into today. Onboarding the world to the token economy, primer and decentralized exchange. Why don't we start off with, why don't you briefly introduce what is Radar Relay? And on a high level, what's the, what's the problem you're trying to solve? Sure. Yeah. We certainly do have a lot to cover. Start with the vision, start with the, the why behind what we're doing, then move into the what, talk about our first product, Radar Relay, talk a little bit about the how and, and what's coming next. So, so the what, or, or sorry, the, the why behind it all, it's, this is a big topic. It's a lot to unpack. So when, when we think about blockchain technology, when we think about digital currencies, the, the power, the emotion, the ethos behind it centered around agency, centered around self-efficacy. It's, it's, it's about empowerment. It's, it's about opportunity, right? Talent, talent is, is evenly distributed, but opportunity is not. And, and, and first principles, that's where we started. Um, but of course, that's not a product. Of course, that's not, that's not a what. And so as, as we thought about how do you apply that ethos to, to technology, we landed on this, this statement, onboarding the world to the token economy. Let's unpack that. What, what does that even mean? So we think about onboarding. That's pretty simple. That just means, creating a soft landing. That means helping people identify, assimilate, understand the technology. Then we talk about the world. And that's how everybody, that's you, that's me, that's that's you listeners, audience out there, that's our maybe our, our laggard family members, that's uh, people who don't want to use the tech, they don't know how to use the tech, it's everybody, is the token economy. And this is the part that I think is often the most confusing for some of our users. When I meet somebody for the first time, this is the part they get stuck on. They get onboarding, they get the world, but the token economy is, is tough. And so I want to try to visualize this with me for, for a moment. So imagine two systems inter- intersecting. The first system is the token system. And there's four different types of tokens. Broadly, there's utility, security, collectibles, and currencies. And a few listeners who maybe aren't to speed on, on this wild and crazy crypto space, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about what those are. But just sake of sake of explanation, just hold those in your mind. And then the second system is the exchange system. This is how value flows to the pipes. And there's only two kinds of these, either mediated, like many of the centralized exchanges you may have heard of, like Coinbase. Yeah, Coinbase is a great example. Or uh, peer-to-peer, like we've built with our first product. And so we see our, our, our why, our vision is connecting those two systems with pipes, with infrastructure, with roads, with scaffolding. We've already started with our first product, and that's Radar Relay. Uh, which is what you've asked about, Eric, and, and that's the the what, at least the the first product we've built. So you can think of of Radar Relay as a bulletin board, and and if you've used Craigslist before and, and you've bought and sold a couch, you've gone out and you, and you've met somebody in some strange Walmart parking lot and, and picked up a couch and, and did that transaction, all of course facilitated by Craigslist. That's like Radar Relay, minus the minus the couch. Add some tokens, add some prettier colors, some charts, some graphing interfaces. We're, we're the same type of platform. You buy and sell tokens, but instead of meeting in a Walmart parking lot, you meet directly on the Ethereum blockchain, wallet to wallet, or in this peer to peer. That's what we hired Colin, in fact, Walmart parking lot, <laughs> our uh, our content audio engineer. Okay, so before we get into the how, a few things to unpack. So one, why don't you describe for listeners the difference between a centralized exchange and a decentralized exchange, and sort of the pros and cons of of each? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, back backtracking just just a moment to maybe the history of, of exchange technology. I mean, if, if you've been in this space long enough in crypto, you've seen the earliest implementations of exchanges like Mt. Gox is a great example. And these were so important. These these software companies, these founders were were, were incredibly innovative in building these, these platforms for people to trade crypto. But of course, they're very vulnerable and there are early implementations in Yes, they adjudicated transactions. Yes, they created a safe sandbox. But man, has that security model been slow to evolve. And, and it's been such a tragedy to see the series of, of hacks that have happened over the last few years. And so, of course, when there's a market opportunity like some of these hacks, brilliant entrepreneurs rise to the occasion and try to create solutions. And so you saw that over the years with some of the first smart contract 
based solutions. Um, like Ether Delta is a great example for those of you who are, are really tuned into to crypto history. Ethereum smart contracts allowed escrow agencies as escrow agents to escrow services allowed groups like Ether Delta to take advantage. But of course, that user interface was also very challenging. Instead of depositing into a centralized exchange, you were depositing into a smart contract. So you lost the high speed trading that a centralized exchange afforded, but you gained some, op- you, you gained some agency over your own funds. You decreased the operational risk, but that those Ether Delta wasn't a great interface for automated traders. Wasn't very friendly for sharing liquidity. You couldn't integrate with it as a DAP. So other smart entrepreneurs like those at zero X that we'll talk about here in a little minute, in a few minutes. So that opportunity created the zero X protocol, which allowed businesses like ours, radar relay to, to launch. Yeah. And while we get into unpack zero X a little bit, what was the innovation that zero X brought, brought to market? Yeah. So when, when we think about a protocol, when, when we think about zero X, you need to understand standardization and interoperability. So if you believe that anything that can be tokenized will be tokenized, if you believe that we all need to play well in the sandbox together, that we should seek first to interoperate, to standardize instead of to, to silo. Um, then you look for solutions that are comprehensive. And zero X is really just two things. The, the first is a messaging layer. And the second is pipes. And so what the messaging layer, it's, it's pretty easy here. When you decide you want to make a trade, when you want to buy or sell, you dictate your order parameters, which token, how many of that token, order expiry, that's cryptographically signed and that data packet flows through the pipes, which is the second part. And you can think of those pipes right now in version one as PVC, for example. But over time, as, as uh, more and more packets flow those pipes, they might get rusty or they, they might need to be retrofitted. They might need new pipes might need to be laid. And so we as a community, all those who are using zero X or interoperating with it, who are engaging with it, get to vote on how those pipes get to be changed and how those pipes should improve. And that's the governance. So they tied a bow on this, on this whole process and they created a token. And if you hold that token, you can gauge in governance on how those pipes are going to be changed over time. Now, zero X can be used by a DAP, a peer to peer, automated traders, relayers. It doesn't matter. It's just a protocol that we're standardizing and we're building to spec on. And when that came out, is that when the idea for you for Radar Relay came about or talk a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah, this is actually an interesting story. And, and, and I haven't, we haven't talked about this in public or, or on a podcast before we were actually thinking deeply about building our own decentralized exchange protocol for, for the previous months. So this would have been many, many crypto years ago. And this would have been May of 2017. We were in front of the whiteboard in my basement thinking about how would we build something like zero X, right? We hadn't, hadn't met them, didn't know about it. And as we made progress, we were fortunate to, to be connected to Will and his team. And they were, they were further ahead of us. They, they had a whole series of edge cases solved for. They had some incredible advisors and we fell in love with their idea of, of the token and, and some of the ideas they had around governance. So instead of being redundant or duplicative, we, we decided to, to follow path of least resistance and be a DAP on top of their protocol. And, and so we got started as soon as we could building with their early early code libraries and, and ended up launching on testnet in August of 2017, just a few months later. So you can see how quickly we built conviction, started building and were able to ship something. Yeah. And how do you guys work together with, with, with zero X and perhaps a, a dumb question. Why doesn't, why didn't zero X just build re- radar relay? Yeah. Great question. So let's answer the second one first. Um, and they almost, they almost did. So it's, it's kind of an inverse path. It's, it's really ironic. So in the early days, right, they were on the sidelines watching Ether Delta, the rise and fall of Ether Delta, which I described a few moments ago. And they had the same thought, Eric, is, well, why don't we build a venue? And as they started building the venue, instead of being the first venue to build something siloed, again, maybe a better UI, maybe friendlier trading tools, they, they had the epiphany that instead, it's best to build a platform, to build something to interoperate, to help entrepreneurs like me build business on top of it. Uh, and then, of course, you know, with with radar, we we were first mover, but there's this advent, this Cambrian explosion of of dozens of other relayers since then. So ironic, we had sort of inverse journeys there. In terms of how we work together, it's very similar to uh, many other platform on platform sort of relationships in that they're they're deeply involved in the research and development, the building of the tooling, managing of you know developer community needs. But that's where they end. And, and we take over by handling 
the token inventory, the fees, the design, the UI, managing automated traders, managing token relationships. And they've been very disciplined about maintaining that balance, which is why I think it's such a healthy ecosystem that they've built, which is why there's so many people building to spec on this protocol. And we love Xerox as well. I'm curious, how do you think about platform risk? Yeah, the age old question of platform risk. So, you know, we can rewind the clock and look at Twitter and Meerkat or Facebook and Zynga, or there's the sort of age old examples of the platform itself deciding, Hey, that revenue opportunity looks good. I think I'm going to take advantage of that. Um, I think the favorite one I've heard so far is, has been Apple and Shazam where um, they, they took that one down real quick or the platform itself becomes irrelevant or yeah, that stops working totally. or yeah, or yeah, another, pl- a better platform comes along and, and my business is, is on an Island. Yeah, absolutely. So that risk is real. So there's, I'm not going to, I'm not going to disagree or, or, or lie and say that risk is not real, but there are some simple ways to adjudicate that. So first zero X is, is a it's possible to be forked as needed. Let's say something tragic, some black swan event happens and Will and his team are, are no longer able to continue working on zero X that that's publicly available for us to fork and, and operate. Um, so that's, that's one sort of decrease mitigation of platform risk. Second is, is around conviction of their team. So if, if you agree that future behavior or that if you agree that past behavior is the best predictor of future behavior, then you just have to look back at the decisions that Will has made already, right? Will is already, and Will and Amir have already decided not to build a venue and to build a protocol. They've already decided to, to issue a, it's almost like the 10 commandments of, of zero X, but there's a medium post that walks through what they will and will not do. They've publicly committed to that. They have a, an incredibly active investor base that, that helps them sort of maintain accountability. And then people like me who are going to push back on, on if they start encroaching on any territory. Um, so, so that's the second mitigation strategy. And then ultimately third, we also have leverage and strength in that relationship. So because we own the, the user and we own that last mile customer journey, we're able to almost lobby, if you will, back to the protocol itself, or in this case, the platform and make sure that the, our users needs are being met as well. So those are three ways that we look to decrease the platform risk, although it is real. And, and certainly some of these other companies didn't see it coming. So actually, actually one of the reasons you guys are one of the investors we're excited to be working with is because you've already seen, you've already seen that happen. You can see that coming around the corner. Many of your LPs, many of your operators here have been a part of, of that platform risk scenario. And I think I can't hope to, to mitigate that by myself, right? It, it takes, it certainly takes a village to do that. Good branding. Thanks. <laughs> Thought <laughs> about that one yeah. before the podcast. <laughs> totally. One thing that we're really excited about what, what you guys are up to is that you really embrace your role as a category creator and an educator to to the audience you have i don't know six or seven independent websites that are beautifully designed and really you know sort of educate the the user as to as to you know how to play in this ecosystem so talk a little bit about how you've any new terms you've invented or how you've thought about category creation and education yes this is my favorite it's my favorite topic i could talk about this at length so when when you seek to bring products to market in a highly commoditized or highly trafficked space like the exchange space, it's important to do so with, with really disciplined intention. So if you look at the exchange space, there's over 200 of them around the world. And most of them are jurisdictional and they have to focus on certain countries because of certain banking relationships. So when we were thinking about launching our first product here, I did not want to be the 228th exchange on the market. And second, we're actually not an exchange. If you actually look at the definition that, that U.S. regulators have around what is an exchange, if you actually look at the mental models that people hold in their minds about what an exchange, we actually don't meet that as well. And so we we are faced with this with this uh, troublesome issue of okay, we want to differentiate, we also want to be accurate and and be concise in, in how how we label ourselves. So we we looked back at who's done this well in history. And we looked at all these category kings, things like Airbnb, things like Keurig, uh, handling coffee, disposable coffee pot. Anybody who has introduced something new, how did they do that? Why did they do that? And so I, I spent a lot of time studying category creation. So the gist is basically when you find a problem, you need to frame that problem for your user. You need to create novel vocabulary, new terms to you know, explain and, and frame that problem. And then all of a sudden you wake up and you've owned the solution. And when you own the solution, you can create the price point. Um, you can, you can sit alongside regulators and you can invite them to this new category that, that's been created. You, you can be honest and open with your users about new user actions. And so this, this idea has propelled us to create 
a series of educational websites. So you referred to weath.io, we have relayer.network, token allowance, Gway.io. There's, there's a whole series of, of these that have continued to reinforce our, our role as a steward of, around creating this category. Now, to be fair, it's very early in the game here. And, and when people think relayer, um, there's still a moment of cognitive dissonance when they think of relay race or, or they, they don't equate the exchange experience with a relayer. And it, it takes a lot of time. You know, it takes any large category that's new that you think of. It didn't happen overnight. It, it takes years. And so each step on our journey, we're, we're going to continue to reinforce a new category. Totally. And for the audience, explain more of the difference between the relayer and decentralized exchange and how that works. And is it fair to maybe say, Hey, what you guys do is, you know, you are the bulletin board where people, you know, meet each other or you, you match them. And then they, once they match the exchange or is what executes the yeah, contract great. itself. Yeah. Thanks, Eric. And, and I, and I failed to mention this earlier when I was differentiating sort of the exchange tech. Thank you for coming back to it. So when you trade on a centralized exchange, you are trading your funds directly with the exchange. You are depositing. And in exchange or in return for losing custody, you get faster trading times. It's a little lower latency, but of course you're exposed to all of that operational risk and the billions of dollars have been lost in that, in that bargain. That's a tough bargain to strike, especially if you're a large trader, if you're an automated trader, if you're an institutional trader, it can be untenable to, to strike that bargain. A decentralized exchange, in my opinion, is not a thing. It is a imprecise term that people have been using as a noun when in fact it is a verb. And I think this lack of precision is creating a lot of confusion for users, regulators, people trying to join the space. So let's abstract that term away. Let's get rid of that term for the purpose of this discussion and think about decentralized exchange as a verb. Um, and think about all the different types of venues that are trying to implement that. You have relayers like radar that you just described where peers trade directly with each other peer-to-peer, or in this case, wallet-to-wallet, and, and the trades happen atomically using the Xerox protocol, meaning at that moment in time. Then you have these other categories, which are, you know, AirSwap is a great example. I think they're referring to themselves as a marketplace. We have asset managers like Bancor, Kyber. We have uh, automated market makers like, like Shapeshift. And so each of us have been bundled under this umbrella term of, oh, those are decentralized exchanges, when in reality, we're, we're all very unique. Um, and I think that term, no, I think, I don't think any of us like that umbrella term. Yeah. Talk a little bit more about those, those other examples, even at a high level in terms of what's, what's their approach or, or how together you guys complete the, the landscape. Totally. Yeah. So visualize a continuum. So imagine all the way on the left side of the continuum are uh, centralized exchanges like the, the ones you, you, you know and love, like Poloniex and, and, Coinbase and Bittrex and Gemini and Binance, et cetera. There's, as I mentioned, there's 200 of those. And as you move to the right, you start to see all the new venues that are A-B testing different strategies. So maybe right there hovering in the middle is is Shapeshift, which is, is has been a pillar of our community for such a long time. Um, and in that context, you can, you can think of them as uh, almost like a, a currency exchange like you'd see at the airport and, and you're trading directly with them. And so it's fast and, and they have high sort of long tail of inventory, but of course it's limited. And if, if you want uh, more than, you know, XYZ amount of a certain token, they're probably not going to have it. Um, and they pull their liquidity off of different centralized exchanges in the background. And if you edge more to the right, you start seeing things like Kyber and Bancor where all transactions are done on chain. So meaning using the Ethereum blockchain, both for making and for taking. And um, those are expensive. Those are pr- a little cost prohibitive, but they're, they're very secure and, and you can open and you can audit those contracts. Of course, there, there are some operational risks on the team themselves. They're not quite fully decentralized. And then if you edge again to the right, you start getting into the, the area that we play in, the quadrant we play in, which is this peer to peer space. Uh, and there are, there are venues like IDEX and AirSwap and Radar that are all sort of riffing on, on some of these core concepts. Obviously, we're biased in, in our architecture and, and that we're really excited that we never take custody of your funds. Uh, we're really excited that we have not incorporated a matching engine. We don't meet a lot of these money transmission laws that some of the, uh, some of the other exchanges who have matching engines do. And we're really excited that uh, we haven't built a smart contract that you have to deposit into. Um, and, and I, and I think the, for, for any users who are, who are at this point are falling asleep listening to me rant through all the different types of venues, my advice would be when, on the next trade that you have, 
go go and try to make that trade on on a few different venues like maybe pick five five of the any of the names i just said and go try them out and go experience the difference in the ui what does it mean to be custodial what does it mean to be non-custodial how fast did my order get executed and understand what the, the right experience is for you ultimately i think we're moving to a to a world to a reality where the centralized exchanges become fiat brokerages what i mean by that is they become the fiat to crypto zero to one on ramp they're going to be really good at managing banking relationships and money transmission laws and handling high touch support for large institutional investors who are using wire transfers. And then once you get on that on ramp, you're on this super highway and that's our turf. That's radar's turf. And, and that's where you're trading with a DAP, you're trading with a peer, you're trading with a market maker. And in order to understand that goal for that difference, you've got to try it yourself and see. A lot of interesting stuff to get into. Want to get into the state of decentralized exchanges today and where you see that going. Want to get into you deeper on, you know, network liquidity, market making. But even, even before that, talk, uh, elaborate a little bit more in terms of the innovation that you, Xerox and others have, have brought to market over something like Ether Delta. Is it this concept that you bring up of, of modular trade networks or like talk more about sure. what the innovation so, is? Yeah. So, so Ether Delta fits under this category of smart contract based exchanges and you trade with their smart contract. So you are losing custody of that to engage with them. But you're not, you're not, you're not losing custody to a centralized exchange and you can, you can withdraw that, those funds as, as needed. And so of course the, the innovation of Zero X, as we talked about, is this idea of doing atomic peer to peer transfers. So there is never a escrow agent. There is never a intermediary. It is purely from peer to peer, or in this case, wallet to wallet. And so the innovation is, is really around these two new user actions. And, and when I spoke a little bit about creating a category a few moments ago, I talked about new user actions. And so often in the history of technology, we, we just breeze right past new user actions, right? When, so when Netscape came online, we had back buttons and we had address bars and we had a refresh. Those were foreign concepts. And I think we often forget how confusing those were. So when we look at relayers as this new category, there's two, two new user interactions that are very important to understanding the juxtaposition. The first is token allowance. And the non-technical way of, of thinking about this is turning your tokens on. So individually allowing the zero X protocol to trade those to trade those tokens. So giving you the self-agency, the self-efficacy, the ownership of those decisions, right? We cannot trade a token without you expressively giving permission. That's a big deal. And then second is wrapping Ethereum. And this this is always a mind bender for some folks. Uh, so the non-technical version here is that the Ethereum engineering team is moving at such a high speed, so much velocity that they actually didn't make Ethereum ERC20 compliant, but all of these assets that were, were, have been issued on top of the Ethereum blockchain certainly are. So in, when you, when you think about peer to peer trades, when you think about atomic trades, it's important. We are trading Ethereum that it's interop, it can interoperate and flow through these pipes without, without being a blocker and without getting stuck. And that's where wrapping Ethereum comes in. So you pass your Ethereum through a contract. Congratulations. You now have wrapped Ethereum and you can use the Zero X protocol. So when you show up at radarrelay.com and you go to, Use our, use our, our new category. You're going to have two new user actions and they're going to be confusing, but it's our job to abstract those. And it's our job to make it easy. It's our job to onboard you. Totally. Let's, let's educate the audience a bit. What is, you know, market making? What do market makers do? How do they do that? And then we can get into your, your concept of network liquidity, how that works. Sure. Right, right, right. So, so for, for any of us who are retail traders of, of crypto or of traditional markets, we often don't see what's going on behind the scenes, right? We want to show up, we want to buy Apple stock, or we want to buy XYZ token. Or we often don't wonder, well, who, who else is on the other side of this trade? And the reality is that in crypto exchanges, 90, 90% plus of the majority of the volume on many of these exchanges are automated liquidity providers. So the, the term that most folks finance use are market makers, right? These are people who are making markets. They're, they're posting uh, orders. So, so takers or, or retail traders can show up and, and have something, have something to do. It's like showing up at a store and the shelves are, are, are being stocked. And how are they doing that? Yeah. So on, on traditional centralized exchanges where you are trading directly with that exchanges, those APIs are very basic. There's, there's, there's not much innovation there. It's not terribly difficult to get spun up with, with trading there. It's very similar to traditional financial exchanges. 
And so they're algorithmically or programmatically trading, right? If token hits X, then my, uh, then I sell Y creates these deep order books. It creates order depth. So individuals like us or, or if you're a Coinbase user, you can show up to Coinbase Pro and, and, and get the token you need. So as we think about launching our venue, as we think about growing our venue, it's imperative that we have those automated traders also present on at radar. So when we launched in October, we had, you know, our first, our first few thousand true fans, if you will, they're all retail users and they're showing up and they're pointing and they're clicking. People have been burned in the previous. Yeah. It's so totally people who had lost money and man, were they frustrated with centralized exchanges. So they showed up and they weren't trading algorithmically. In fact, we didn't even have an SDK available when, when we launched. And so over the last few months, you know, we've been growing 400, 500% month over month and average volume. That's all been on the backs of retail users, which is amazing. And, and every moment I get, I, I thank, um, I thank them for, for bearing with us on, um, as we've grown and, and handling bug tests and, and showing up and continue to use it. But we're, we're now finally ready to turn a corner and begin onboarding automated traders. And what does this, what does this actually mean? It means going and finding the people who are active on centralized exchanges, educating them on our category, getting them to yes to, to explore the category. And then we give them our API. We give them our SDK, which, which is think of it as a development environment to get started faster. And we're going to ask them to make markets on radar. And the value prop or the carrot for them is that they get to maintain their funds throughout the entire process. No longer do they have to go to bed wondering, dear God, are my funds going to be there tomorrow? No longer are their API keys have randomly refreshed and they lose 18 hours of, 18 hours of downtime. And no longer are they, are they having to deal with some of the questionable questionable volume, questionable trades that are happening that are obfuscated from them that are in the background in, in the dark. And so we're really excited just in this last few weeks, we've started to sign liquidity incentive agreements with market makers, and we've started to onboard these uh, automated traders. And explain your concept of network liquidity. Sure. So yeah, this is a great, this is a great one to explain a- around this new vocabulary. So again, reiterating new category means new vocabulary, new ways to describe these problems and new ways to describe the solutions. So the concept of network effects we're all very familiar with, especially in the technology space. And it's one of the deepest moats that you can build, right? With the emergence, it's the phenomenon around the emergence of a new user creating uh, magnified value for the rest of the network. And when you apply that to trading platforms, network effects just, it, it, um, it works, but it's not, it's not, as extensive, it's not as descriptive of, of the real value and impact of what's happening. So we, we coined this term networked liquidity, right? We, we did that. We did that with zero X, um, because we we're, we we're thinking, well, we're all standardized to the zero X protocol. And if, if village, if you got village global decides they're going to, you guys are going to build a relayer, but you don't know how to onboard automated traders. You don't know how to handle token inventory relationships. You might want to piggyback off of us and share. And that is possible with a standardized protocol like zero X. And so that ability, that phenomenon of us able to share liquidity and the entire network accrues value is what we've deemed networked liquidity. So the phenomenon similar to network effects, uh, where in this case, a rising tide actually does lift all boats. So a village global decides that you want to focus on, you're going to launch in the Philippines and you're only going to focus on real estate tokens in the Philippines. We can actually play well together in that sandbox. We can share order flow. We can share fees. We can share volume. And, and that concept is foreign, um, for centralized exchanges. That concept is foreign because they're siloed. They can't share. So network liquidity is truly one of the innovations that is built in with the zero X protocol. Now today, 2018, most activity, I don't know, 99%, nearly all of it happens on centralized exchanges. What are the biggest bottlenecks right now to widespread adoption and what's going to need to change for that? Yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm going to ask, Eric? How much time do you have? <laughs> yeah. How much? So, so the bottlenecks are vast and the, you're right about the volume. So as I mentioned, right, we've launched in October and, and although we have grown faster than I, I could have ever imagined and hoped for the aggregate volume we've done is around, I think it's almost 160 million at this point since we launched is less than Coinbase will do in one day. And I, and I understand that and, and I recognize that. So what are the bottlenecks? So first is I've already mentioned the automated traders. We, if the majority of volume is happening on these centralized exchanges from those automated traders, well, of course it makes sense that we need them to grow our volume as well. Um, so that's one. Um, second is understanding, right? It's this category creation piece of what the heck we're doing, education, stewardship. That's an obvious one. And then third, 
because we're using the Ethereum blockchain as a as the settlement agent here, as the uh, as the clearinghouse, if you will, that means we're restricted to Ethereum assets. So ERC twenty tokens in particular. Bitcoin, don't have it. Zcash, don't have it, right? Some of these other really exciting projects that are not built on the Ethereum blockchain, we don't have in our inventory. So until we can sort out how to get cross-chain, how to bring those assets to radar, or how to build adjacent products that might offer that, we're, we're missing that part of the, the market. If you go and you look at coin market cap and, and you look at what's trading today, you'll find that I think in the top 10, you know, outside of Ethereum, Maybe, maybe there's one, maybe there's two, um, ERC 20 tokens. And so, so those are some of the bottlenecks we're, we're working on solving. Is it possible? We don't think so. That's why we, we, we invested, but is it possible that in the next couple of years, you know, it stays this way in terms of most activity happening on centralized exchange and in terms of maybe like it's, it's a phenomenon similar to Facebook where people say they care about privacy, but <laughs> they don't, you know, they, yeah. don't, they don't change their behavior as much. Maybe, maybe people yeah. want a centralized place to, yep. to you know, take care of their, you know, yeah, so I'm, I'm glad you brought this up. So, and this is, I, I think I've mentioned this briefly a few times on, on other podcasts and it, but I'll try to cover it in more depth here. So radar is a business that has multiple products. Radar relay is our first product. Now we've, we're living in this, in this future state, right? Whether it's 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, we're, we're there. We feel it. We can, can touch it. We can taste it. We, we know what it looks like. And it's this token economy. It's this idea that the token is the medium of exchange is the unit of account. We just have to get there. So that means we just have to build backwards. So we see this world. It's built on a few assumptions. First is anything that can be tokenized will be tokenized. So if you believe that, then that means that dApps, which are going to be unstoppable, are going to come online and they're going to have crypto native financing, right? They're going to have tokens, but we cannot expect a user to hold unlimited amounts of tokens to make their way across this wild and beautiful web three frontier. We, instead, that needs to be abstracted away from them. The user is not going to want to carry around a ledger. The user is not going to want to visit RadarRelay.com, buy XYZ token, show back up to Augur and use that token. Instead, they just want a managed and frictionless experience. So we're ripping a, a page right out of Stripe's playbook here. And we're building, we're building this, this global liquidity pool, which a DAP engineer, a distributed application, decentralized application, a DAP engineer can tap into our liquidity pool. So a user shows up and can pay in any token they want, but under the hood, on the fly, at the point of contact, the specific token for that application is accessed. That is where we are going. That is where relayers are headed. That is where decentralized liquidity pools are headed. In the immediate short term, I agree with your premise, Eric, that not, you know, every Coinbase user isn't going to wake up tomorrow and say, you know what, I'm ready to handle private key management and let me go show up at rate. But I am with deep conviction in belief that the DAP, sort of DAP revolution or the DAP transition is on its way here and that they will take advantage of token processing to meet their needs of their users. And why don't we take a minute to paint a picture a little bit of what that frictionless token processing will, will enable? What sort of new primitives or new behaviors? Sure. Yeah. Good one. Um, so let's imagine that, um, you want to take advantage of, um, the, the, this next Dropbox on the blockchain, let me make up a Blockbox. You want to take advantage of Blockbox, which is a, maybe a clone of, of Dropbox, but it's when you show up, you know, they're using Civic for identity. They're using some sort of storage layer under the hood to, to handle that in a distributed format. They're using maybe some sort of district zero X marketplace to, to handle the buying of, of storage. Who knows, right? There's a whole series of dApps that are being woven together to meet this user. And you show up and in one version of the world, you're expected to hold all of those tokens and engage in, in all of those ways. And in the other version of the world, you just show up and you pay an ETH or you pay in a stable coin. You pay in whatever you want, frankly. And by that time, I think we'll have consolidated on stable coins as the, as, as the best method for, for paying for services like that. But in our imagination, you show up, you pay with that stable coin and under the hood, that DAP engineer, so Blockbox, right? So the head of head, the engineering director at Blockbox has set up an integration with Radar's liquidity pools or other ZeroX liquidity pools. And they're pulling the Civic token. They're pulling the Filecoin token. They're pulling the um, District ZeroX token. And, and they're under the hood being paid out in, in the right incentives for them, but not servicing any of that complexity to the user. So what does that look like for us, for the liquidity provider? It looks like a whole series of order flows coming in being very price insensitive, crossing the spread because their users want it now. And, and, and our, their users are, um, are the customer. And, and so it's important to meet their needs now, which of course creates 
tradable opportunities on an order book for takers, for automated traders. So it's, it's this, it's incredible phenomenon that seems kind of crazy when you think about it now in 2018, but it makes a lot of sense in a few years where we have global participatory price discovery that's focused on engaging with dApps, not trading speculatively through a, through an. Coinbase itself recently this year acquired Paradox, decentralized exchange. So are they trying to disrupt themselves? How do you explain that, that move and what did that mean for, for you guys? And what does that mean for the, the decentralized exchange ecosystem moving forward? Sure. I remember this day pretty, pretty vividly. So I was, uh, I was sitting in the Xerox office with the Xerox team. Um, and we were talking, we were talking ironically about how do we put our category on the map? Right. What, what else, what else needs to happen? And then my phone just went absolutely nuts. And, you know, we, we saw that Coinbase had Aqua hired, uh, Paradex, which, which is, a another relayer project. You know, it's, it's founded by a, uh, deeply financial operator, Ron, with a, with a small distributed team. And, and they had done an excellent job of trying to recreate more of a conventional institutional trading experience using some of the Xerox technology. And in terms of what is Coinbase doing, I think Coinbase is, is maybe they're starting to feel some of the innovators dilemma, right? Where it's this challenge around, does the incumbent get innovation or does the startup get distribution? And, you know, Paradox was really struggling with distribution. You know, we, we were fortunate to, to be a first mover and, and to have a sort of a head start on some of that distribution. And, and so, you know, I think Paradox made a, made a decision around, okay, well, Coinbase has distribution. So it's a fit for us. Coinbase looked at it as how do we use the, these people to help us find innovation and, and maybe solve for some of that innovators dilemma before it became overly problematic. Now, the outcome of that was, was terrific for us because it, it validated this category that we've worked so hard to create. It validated that large companies um, are concerned about losing order flow to decentralized venues. Validated that sort of a white knight like Coinbase found regulatory clarity in, in our category. And at that moment, we, we had just started our Series A financing meetings. And I think the timing could not have been better for us, right? Because I had every large exchange in the world reach out and want to learn more about, you know, why was one of the smaller relayers acquired? You know, are you, are, are you guys for sale? Of course, the answer was no, we're, we're raising financing. Every large investor reached out who wanted, well, now wanted exposure to this category. And um, it ended up speeding up our, um, our Series A uh, pretty exponentially. So overall, uh, net positive for, for Coinbase, net positive for Paradex, for us, for the category. And it's, it's one of those few business deals that comes along once in a while that, um, everybody high fives. Yeah. One, um, th- you know, something people are talking about in the space is the concept of value accrual and, and where it is, where does value accrue? How do people capture value? I'm curious how you guys think about it relative to first relative to zero X and then also relative to, you know, over time as, you know, fees get commoditized as it gets commoditized. How do you guys think about capturing value? Yeah. Let's talk about moats. So we've talked about one already and that's the most powerful moat and that's liquidity, right? Of any marketplace, any platform, any venue, it's, it's all about liquidity, but there are, there are many other moats. So there are weak moats or shallow moats like token inventory. And again, if you believe all tokens will be, to- anything that can be tokenized will be, that means there are unlimited amounts of token inventory situations. And, and what do you say to people who don't believe that first? That everything will be tokenized will be tokenized. Yeah. I mean, I would just say, look at the last year and I you know, look at projects that are trying to tokenize value. I'm sorry, tokenize attention, like the basic attention token. Look at people that are tokenizing art and real estate and land rights and uh, sand and banana. I mean, any, that is not to say, right? I'm, I'm not suggesting that everything that can be tokenized should be tokenized. What I'm suggesting is that it will be um, because of 365, 24-7 liquidity, because of the opportunities around bringing on new global markets, latent demand that couldn't have previously participated in, the, in capital formation. So anyway, so Most. yeah, mo- so, so token inventory, that's one. Uh, second is UI. Um, I think that right now people are, are thrilled and impressed with user interface, user experience. We get some, some really flattering comments at, at radar, but, but I don't think that's enduring. In other words, when Facebook and Google's designers show up, it's, it's becomes table stakes to have really elegant design. Another shallow mode is fees, right? Like to your point, fees get commoditized. And, and right now, you know, on a centralized exchange, you pay, you pay to deposit, you pay to withdraw and you pay to trade. So people don't think about that when they think about all those trades and, and, you know, on some venues like 
shapeshifter banquet, they're baking spreads in that you probably don't know that they are because you're not sitting down and doing the math. Um, those are very profitable businesses, but of course those are being rapidly commoditized. Um, so we've actually launched with zero fees specifically to increase the chances that a user is going to kick our tires without finding friction around fees. Okay. So fees, those are some weak modes, some stronger modes, brand equity. Um, I think people underestimate the value of brand in the long term and overestimate it in the short term. And we're really focused on building brand value that compounds. So with each new educational post or each new tweet, frankly, we're, we're making sure that we have message brand fit. We're making sure that we are continuing to act as a steward. And then another really strong mode is regulatory accountability, regulatory strategy. It's wild and naive and crazy to me that so many venues are engaging in this goofy regulatory arbitrage with, if you're a U.S. citizen and you're operating a U.S. software company, please follow U.S. law. We are a Delaware C-Corp and we've spent a lot of time understanding FinCEN and CFTC and SEC and IRS and XYZ agencies to make sure um, that we're up to date on their case law. We're up to date on the recommendations, on their sanctions. We, we have more attorneys than I want to admit um, helping us think through this. And so, um, so those are some of the moats. And in terms of, of, of where I spend a lot of my time, it's on the deepest moats. It's, it's how do we build global liquidity? It's, it's how do we ensure our regulatory accountability and, and brand? Yeah. What is the state of DApps today? Oh my goodness. So. developing. (laughs) So when, when, when we launched in August, you could have put me on a polygraph and I could have high conviction told you Augur was right here. It was just around the corner. And that when radar launched, this token processing would find product market fit this year, this calendar year, uh, 2018. What I mean by that is um, this year. and, and, And I think I was off, I was off by maybe a few magnitudes here. So what, what you have what happened? Why? Uh, it's two things are happening. Um, the first is the the smartest engineers in the deep in the in the recesses of of Facebook and, and Google and Netflix they're they're kicking the tires on their nights and weekends. We have not, as an industry, the blockchain industry, we have not been able to incentivize them at scale to to zoom in. Right? They're doing it on their nights and weekends, which which I think is is terrific. It's baby steps. I thought it would happen faster. Second is. Token generation events, token sales sucked a lot of the, the vacuum sucked, where vacuum sucked a lot of the noise, a lot of the value, a lot of the dollars out of investors into those projects because the, the liquidity there was real and the, the discount on token sales were real and they were able to get returns they might, they, they couldn't have have in equity markets. And so projects like radar, other equity driven companies weren't able to get, haven't been able to get the funding they needed. And of course, then they went and joined a token project. Not that that's not important, but we need people who are focused on the infrastructure. We need people who are focused on the roads and the pipes and the, uh, like, like we are. So, so those are some. And then third, I think there's been a flight to build new blockchains. So, um, and this is a question that, that you had asked previously that I skipped over is, is how do we think about uh, other, other chains? The Ethereum blockchain, the Ethereum development team is driven by such deep altruism and such deep passion. And they're working their ass off to, to solve for some of these Ethereum scalability problems. But there's only so many cooks you can fit into a kitchen, right? You, you only need so many engineers working on protocol design. And so some of the best and brightest have zoomed into the space, have gone and worked on Definity and Thunder Token and EOS and Ripple and all these different chains. And so I think you're seeing a stretching effect of smart minds being fragmented across all these different chains. So, you know, where, whereas previously I was thinking there would be this Cambrian explosion of dApps on Ethereum. Now what I, what I think is happening is this Cambrian explosion of, of new blockchains and new use cases. Each are going to build this nascent dApp economy, if you will, colonizing these blockchains in, in very unique ways. More permission chains like, like Ripple or EOS might lend themselves better to security token ecosystems. Whereas things like Thunder Token or, or things like Solana, which are super high, Late, uh, low latency, high frequency, not high transactions per second are going to lend themselves better to crypto kitties or, um, or even radar. And so th- those are some of the reasons why there's been a little bit of a, maybe a slower growth than expected. Also, you know, maybe the, the last call to action is for all the users listening in. If you haven't engaged with crypto kitties, if you haven't used radar, if, if you haven't showed up at one of the, the other dApps online or, or made a, a bet on, on Augur, please do. Um, because that's how we show demand for the engineers at Facebook to leave their gigs and show up. That's how we show demand to investors that they need to be focused on, on the infrastructure side. Yeah. So we just spent a weekend with 30 builders, some investors, a token daily retreat in Sonoma. I'm curious, 
you know, as you talk to builders and you talk to a lot of them, you work with a lot of them in the next year or two, like where do you see them wanting to put more attention to, or where do you want them to put more attention to? Yeah. Two very different <laughs> questions. So let's start with where selfishly yeah. where I want yes. more attention. Uh, and then we can, then we can talk about what, what they're allocating uh, resources on. So, so first and foremost, these are, these are businesses, these are companies and these are teams and the laws around and the physics around building a team do not change across industry. What does it mean to hire well? What does it mean to give and deliver feedback? What does it mean to build a strategic plan and use objectives on a quarterly cadence and measure? That does not change. And that operational efficiency, that blocking and tackling is missing across the the majority of these projects. I think there's a few reasons for that. One is these are, although they're entrepreneurially led, they're not often professionally managed by consummate operators who have been around the block. There are engineers who have incredible ideas that just want to code. They just want to build. And so I think one of my uh, soapboxes that I often take out, like I did at the, the, the conference this weekend, is find a COO, find an operator. It could be an investor, it could be an, could be an advisor, but find somebody who has built a team. You know, the worst thing we could have happen is, is Vitalik managing HR issues, right? We, we need him thinking deeply about Ethereum for the next decade. Uh, we don't need him managing payroll. And I think too often that's, that's happening. And in terms of what people are allocating resources to in terms of what builders are doing is I think there's a, a lot of work, uh, being spent on optimizing technology without talking to users and without talking to customers. And again, this is a law of, of building a business that holds true across any domain is the customer is always right. And, and I've, I've heard this quote a few times and I used to love it and now it bothers me. And the quote is, it's a Henry Ford quote. You might've heard it is if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. And that was sort of the tired. That's like the tired euphemism that many innovators use to justify building something that people don't want or don't need. And so I would, I would, I think there's a lot of, a lot of time that these projects spend avoiding user feedback because how could these users understand how technically complex that their projects are and surely they will one day and so so you know the, the, you know getting off my soapbox um those are those are a few of the things I'd, I'd love to see totally how do you know when to uh when to listen versus when to say hey had a report quote is correct like in this no, instance totally. Totally. No, I think it's, so I think it follows the, the fusion of innovation. So if, if you, if you've seen this innovation curve, this bell curve where you, your early adopters subsidize the demand and, and, and act as agents and influencers bringing on the next, the next category on that bell curve of early adopters. And then you cross the chasm. And, and so I think it is, there will always be 1000 true fans for any cool tech that is built. You will always find somebody who is going to try it and it's going to use it, especially with, with how vibrant our community is globally. You're going to find somebody on GitHub that, that's willing to make some PRs and, and contribute. But if you're not thinking deeply about how this technology crosses the chasm and how you use those 1000 true fans to act as influencers to, to get to your next users. And if you're not thinking about that project is probably going nowhere fast. And so, you know, just to, you know, to go back to that quote, you know, I think the real innovation that Henry Ford actually brought to market was the conveyor belt and the supply chain and, and, and not necessarily the, the car, right? The, there was many people working on that. And so I, w- I would just encourage everybody to, to think about, well, who else has to use this technology and can we reach them without them having a PhD in computer science? Really winding down a bit here. Talk about a little other future, you know, uh, products from radar relay and how you see, think about that development. Sure. So, um, Another visual, I'm giving you guys lots of visuals today, but if you, if you think about what does it take for a user to show up at Radar Relay and use it, think of it like a funnel. So at the top of the funnel, you have all 10 billion people on, on planet Earth. Go down one click on that funnel. Let's go to Coinbase. Coinbase has 10 million users, give or take a few million. So already we see this huge drop off in the funnel. Now you're a Coinbase user. What's next? Well, it's MetaMask, meaning MetaMask is a software wallet. It's a Web3, uh, Web3 wallet you use to engage with dApps like Radar. There's a million of them. So now we've gone down a whole other power law distribution there, inverse. Now go down another click and, and Radar has about 10,000. We've had a little over 10,000 users, right? On, on Radar. So look at the, 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 that funnel and you think about what is our role in that funnel? Is it optimizing? the conversion one click above us and, and getting more of the 1 million people to show up on radar. Yeah, that, that is important. I concur that that's certainly important, but 
if we really want to um, to onboard the world to the token economy, we've got to go to the top of the funnel. We've got to be involved in involved in helping more people move into these fiat gateways. And so I think about our role in the ecosystem is, is twofold. First is continuing to build at this very bottom layer, building better peer-to-peer trading exchange infrastructure for securities and utilities and currencies and collectibles, maybe making contributions to the wallet space like MetaMask and making sure that path is seamless. But then also zooming way to the top of the stack and making sure that those 10 billion users can make their way down to the funnel. So those are the two, the two lanes, two verticals we're focused on. Awesome. This has been a fantastic episode, Alan. Any last plugs for, for Radar or what can people expect? You know, where can people follow you guys online and learn more and follow along? Yeah, lots of, lots of plugs to do. The first one is, is actually not for, not for us is, you know, if you're, um, if you're not in the space currently and, and maybe you're just a, a devoted listener and you think maybe this crypto stuff is, is kind of wild and crazy, I would encourage you to go look at what's happening in the NFT space. And that's the non fungible token space. So there's an incredible community being led by people like Matt Condon doing work to bridge this gap between tangible and intangible assets. And I would just, I'd recommend go spend some time there. Uh, and then in terms of radar plugs, we are constantly hiring, always growing. And it, so if you're a high conviction builder, community ambassador to help us with the 150 countries that we're, we're now servicing, or, or if you are an operator like me and, 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 and you want to help a, a group of brilliant, um, entrepreneurs build something, we want to talk to you. And then most importantly, if you're a user, we need to spend as much time as we can with our users. We're, we're, I think we're on track to do 50 user interviews this month. And, you know, uh, many of them we give away free t-shirts and ledgers and, but each user interview is reviewed by, by our, both our chief creative officer and our engineering team and, and making sure that we're building what, what, what people need. And so those are just some plugs. And of course you can follow along on Twitter and Medium and. And you guys are representing Fort Collins. Yeah. Okay. I'm glad you mentioned that. So, um, the company was, uh, was launched in, in my basement in Fort Collins, which is an hour north of Denver. Our company is now headquartered in Denver. Although we do, you know, we have almost 30 people now and we are pretty distributed. One in SF, one in New York, one in London, a few in Argentina. But yeah, the nucleus of our culture is, is certainly in Colorado. Represent. Yeah. Alan, thanks so much. It's been a wonderful episode. Yeah. Thanks, Eric. Right.